I next met with Dr. Dan George to get his take on ASCO presentations on prostate and renal cell cancer. And to begin, he commented on a phase three trial evaluating intermittent androgen deprivation in prostate cancer. This was a long anticipated study. This is almost a 20 year study of a SWOG protocol, 9346. It was actually a international intergroup study. These are rare, but this involved both CLGB, SWOG, ECOG, NCI Canada, and EORTC. It accrued over 3,000 patients over the course of probably about 11 years of accrual. And the strategy here was to really look at the question of intermittent versus continuous androgen deprivation therapy in the context of metastatic prostate cancer. And they pre-specified two groups, sort of a limited or minimal metastatic disease pattern, and then a wider, more extensive metastatic disease pattern was stratified by that. And patients were treated with hormonal therapy for seven months. If they didn't achieve a PSA less than four, they were taken off study and just kept on continuous. But if they did achieve a PSA less than four after seven months, they were randomized to either continuous or intermittent. So they accrued about half the patients, about a little over 1,500 patients made that endpoint. And then we followed up. We have about a 10-year follow-up on these patients. So it's a huge, nearly 20-year study for this report to come out. And it was set up as a non-inferiority study. So really to try to show that these were equivalent strategies with the kind of underlying hypothesis assumption here that intermittent would be better for quality of life, better for kind of cumulative side effects and other comorbid risks of death. So the punchline from this study, which was actually fairly controversial at ASCO, was that this did not meet the non-inferiority bar. So what we have for that is sort of a confidence interval. And it goes from basically 1 to 1.2 hazard ratio or 20% greater increase of death. And what this showed was it went up to 1.24. So it suggested that there could be an increased risk of death associated with intermittent therapy. What that translates to in English, median survival for the continuous hormonal therapy was 5.8 months. Median survival for the intermittent hormonal therapy was 5.1 months. The other interesting aspect was that the minimal disease population had a clearly inferior outcome, while the more extensive disease population were completely equal, so completely non-inferior. So it's really confusing data at the end of the day. It doesn't give us a clear message. And I think what it does say is that for metastatic prostate cancer, continuous hormonal therapy is still our standard of care. For earlier disease states, I think it's still worthy of investigation, and I think it's still acceptable standard of care to do intermittent hormonal therapy. What were your thoughts about Abstract 4518 looking at abiraterone and chemotherapy-naive patients with metastatic disease? Yeah, you know, Neil, this was another kind of hotly anticipated study. There was a teasing press release a few months ago telling us that the study was stopped early, that there was unblinding of the study at its second interim analysis by the Data Safety Monitoring Group because of across-the-board effects on radiographic progression-free survival and a strong trend in overall survival. So we got to see the data at ASCO. And just to orient everybody, this was a study of abiraterone acetate, which is a novel androgen synthesis inhibitor. It's blocking the metabolism of cholesterols into androgens like testosterone throughout the body, not just limited to the testes. And so specifically working on other organs like the adrenal glands or liver, 
And also what we're appreciating more and more, the tumor microenvironment as a source of microandrogens, if you will, paracrine androgens that may be helping the tumor to grow in the setting of castrate testicular suppression of testosterone. So previously, this drug was shown to have a significant survival advantage in the post-chemotherapy setting. But we recognize in practice, only 50% of patients get chemotherapy. And those that get chemotherapy then go on to a clinical trial, we're looking at a select group of patients. So instead, what they looked at here was a pre-chemotherapy population. This does not necessarily mean these are patients that are all going to go on to get chemotherapy. In fact, only about half do even in this study population. So we're looking at a much broader population of castrate-resistant patients. And I think that's really important to bear in mind. This is not just moving it pre-chemo. This is opening up this drug to a much broader patient population than we studied before. Elderly patients, patients that are potentially more frail or have other significant comorbidities that we would exclude them from chemotherapy. And we're looking in that population with this abiraterone acetate against prednisone alone. Now you may say, well, prednisone alone, how active is that? Well, actually, historically, it probably matches up pretty favorably to bicalutamide or most of our other secondary hormonal strategies. So it's a reasonable comparator. And what it showed was a almost a doubling of the progression-free survival, radiographic progression-free survival by hazard ratio. It was less than 0.5, around 0.5 they didn't actually reach the boundary for the median for the abiraterone arm and came out of, I think, around six or so for the prednisone alone arm. So we're estimating this is probably going to come in somewhere around 14, 16 months for the median progression-free survival for radiographic progression. I think, Neil, this is a key point with this drug. I see a lot of patients, you know, coming in to see me at Duke where they've been treated with abiraterone for a couple of months. It didn't drop the PSA and the clinician stopped the drug. This is not necessarily a drug that's going to work on the PSA immediately. So it's really important to recognize these trials are being done with radiographic progression as the endpoint. So in our practice, if we want to recapitulate this data, we really have to look at radiographic progression on bone scan new lesions or soft tissue progression to really justify stopping the drug. PSA modulation alone, I wouldn't pull the trigger on. And I think that's what this study shows us. Now, that also translated into a strong trend in overall survival benefit, but the hazard ratio there was much more modest, 0.75, and it was not statistically significant. So our discussant for this abstract, Susan Alabi, statistically pointed this out and said, you know, really questioned why this study had to be stopped early with only 43% of the events reporting in. And, you know, in some ways it's a shame for the field because I think that, you know, having a really good historical baseline for survival benefit correlating with that radiographic progression-free survival would have been a really strong message for clinicians out there that radiographic progression ought to be, you know, what we drive towards with this drug. But be that as it may, I still think that's the right practice. That's how I use this drug when I use it in this setting. I treat patients, I watch PSA, but it's ultimately change in scans or symptoms that's going to drive my practice change. So do you consider the prednisone a control arm or a treatment arm? It's interesting. I see the PSA decline greater than 50% with prednisone alone was 24%. Is that noise? It, no, it isn't. You know, I was shocked when we had patients unblinded on this study. I had a patient that was on study for 11 months with an 80% decline in PSA, and I just assumed that had to be abiraterone. He was unblinded and on prednisone. So prednisone can be active in this disease, remarkably so. Inflammatory features 
achy bone pain, some weight loss, some loss of appetite. These are a big part of sort of the minor symptoms that patients develop with prostate cancer that are really inflammatory in nature. And prednisone may do a lot to help mitigate that underlying biology. So I don't think it's just a total placebo here. I think there was a treatment effect, but clearly abiraterone acetate above and beyond that with many of these endpoints. So you mentioned MDV-3100. There's a lot of interest in that agent, enzalutamide. And there were two papers I wanted to ask you about presented, 4519 and 4695. You know, I was talking to your colleague in breast cancer, Kim Blackwell, and she was part of this look in breast cancer of androgen receptors in breast cancer patients. And she was saying, I can't wait to get my hands on MDV-3100. <laughs> I think we're very excited about this biology. You know, I think for 70 years now, since the years of Charles Huggins first showed us that androgen deprivation therapy works in prostate cancer, we've targeted testosterone. Everything we've done has been testosterone, except for this class of what we've termed anti-androgens, drugs like bicalutamide or nilutamide or flutamide, that have historically been very, very weak micromolar inhibitors of this receptor, and in truth, really partial agonists, much like tamoxifen. So weak antagonist, partial agonists. That's what we based our androgen receptor inhibition on until this drug came along. And I actually think this drug is somewhat serendipitous because I'm not sure we can explain its biology solely by its greater affinity for the androgen receptor. If that were the case, I would expect to see good response rates, but not necessarily the duration of response. What's really amazing about this agent is how durable these responses are in this advanced metastatic, castrate-resistant, you know, bicalutamide or other anti-androgen-resistant in chemotherapy refractory population. And they had an 18-month median survival in this population, which was really remarkable. Yeah, we were talking about the fact that it is more than kind of like what bicalutamide is. It has other activities. Do you have an understanding of that? Yeah, you know, the way it's been shown preclinically is that it works on several levels of the engine receptor activation. So the engine receptor starts in the cytosol, and that's where it binds to ligand. So by binding the engine receptor in the cytosol, MDV3100 or enzalutamide not only inhibits the binding of other ligands like dihydrotestosterone or testosterone, but actually prevents the transport of that receptor, the nuclear transport, into the nucleus. The reason that may be significant, even more significant than the inhibitory effect, is that there are other variants of the engine receptor that we're beginning to appreciate are present in prostate cancer. Splice variants or other kind of RNA alterations of this protein that allow it activity, even perhaps in the absence of ligand, but they do typically have to bind to the wild-type receptor. So by sequestering the wild-type receptor, out of the nucleus, even those forms may not necessarily be as active. So this may have stumbled upon a biology of inhibiting on multiple levels the activation of this receptor, not just at one level. So how about this phase three affirm study? So this was initially reported at GUASCO, and this is sort of the more follow-up comprehensive report. And what this data showed, again, this was this large phase three study done in the chemorefractory population. So that a little bit more narrowed population, but really kind of end-stage disease where there is very little standard of care. And compared MDV3100, no steroids in this case, so no prednisone to placebo, and uh, two-to-one randomization, 
800 patients to 400 patients and showed a dramatic improvement in survival, 4.8 months with a hazard ratio, 0.64 or so, and dramatic differences, not just in what we see with overall survival, but also in radiographic progression-free survival, PSA progression-free survival, and PSA response. Unlike abiraterone acetate, this drug seems to have even greater degrees of PSA decline. It makes kind of more sense because it's working more closely to that androgen receptor signaling biology and the activation of PSA. What's, I think, really interesting to me is in many of our patients that responded to this therapy, their ultimate progression is characterized by a further increase in PSA, suggesting that somehow that androgen receptor is still important in this biology. It's really telling us how addicted this tumor is, at least in some patients, to this androgen receptor. But this study was across the board positive, dramatically so. It's being reviewed for the FDA for approval this year. I think it's going to be a huge addition, not only to our prostate cancer armamentarium, but also, as you mentioned, in breast cancer, where we're appreciating more and more androgen receptor biology. I think in prostate cancer, this drug's going to move up much the same sort of pattern that abiraterone has followed. In fact, they've got a study very similar to that Cougar 302 study called the Prevail study, which we'll see results in a year or two on as well. And I think that, you know, these drugs are going to fight for that kind of same space in terms of how we manage these patients. But having both of these options available to us, being able to look at combinations in the future and populations of patients who we can identify earlier for these kind of strategies, even perhaps before castrate-resistant disease, I think these are all the kinds of things you're going to see more and more data on. We'll talk a little bit about some abstracts we have. In fact, the other one you mentioned from Bob Montgomery that looked at neoadjuvant use of MDV3100, so really kind of a hormone-naive population to show the treatment effects there. And again, this was a relatively small phase two study of luprolide and MDV3100 and dutasteride, the idea of blocking testosterone to dihydrotestosterone conversion sort of kind of to decrease some of the ligand affinity and maybe make MDV3100 even a greater therapeutic index in inhibiting that androgen receptor. So a combination of all three of those strategies together, pre-prostatectomy. And, you know, these early neoadjuvant studies, I wouldn't overinterpret them, but I think what they're beginning to show us is that perhaps we can really question our whole paradigm of androgen deprivation therapy. And perhaps we've been for 70 years now, giving subtotal or suboptimal androgen deprivation therapy. And in some settings, adding these other drugs to that androgen deprivation therapy may give us more complete blockade and maybe the kind of pathologic changes we're looking for, the kind of CR results that ultimately could translate into a real surrogate for disease-free survival that we see in other cancers like breast cancer and lung cancer and colon cancer. So to me, I think this is really exciting kind of pilot data. I'm not sure it's practice changing at this point, but it does suggest that drugs like MDV3100 are not just effective in castrate-resistant prostate cancer, but really throughout the entire natural history of this disease, maybe even more so in some settings in these early disease patients. Yeah, I like how they call it an oral androgen receptor signaling inhibitor rather than an antiandrogen. And, you know, the other thing that's cool is I always love waterfall plots, but I'm not sure I've seen one like they have in this phase three study with PSA kind of waterfall. And it looks pretty cool. 
No, it's not just. I mean, this is like Niagara Falls waterfall. I mean, this yeah. is a huge drop down. They had twenty four percent of the population that had a ninety percent decline in PSA. Remember, this is after all the secondary hormonal manipulations, after androgen deprivation failure, after chemotherapy. This is a patient population, you know, in the control arm. It had a little over a year to live, about fourteen months to live, median survival. And we're seeing a quarter of these patients with a ninety percent decline. So really dramatic effects here. I think you're going to see that look even more dramatic as we move it up earlier. So I'm very excited about that agent and what it means in terms of questioning all of our dogmas and paradigms in prostate cancer. Another agent I'm really excited about, but I wish I could learn more about it. Maybe you can teach me is radium-223 chloride, abstract 4512. Chris Parker again presented data on alpha-radin. Yeah, this is a really, I know I'm getting kind of sound like a broken record here, Neil, with the excitement here. And prostate cancer has been stagnant for a number of years. And suddenly, in just a short period of time, we're seeing not just one kind of new strategy, but like three or four. We had Cipulocele T a few years ago come in and show us a active immunotherapy survival advantage. We've had this round of secondary hormonal strategies, really not just incrementally, but really change our whole paradigm thinking about hormonal therapy. And now we've got radium-223, a radiopharmaceutical, which falls almost like MDV-3100 into a class of drugs that we weren't very excited about. Agents that clearly had some activity, but not necessarily anti-tumor activity, more palliative benefit in prostate cancer. Radiopharmaceuticals like strontium-89, or samarium-153, have been used primarily to deliver beta-emitting radiation therapy into areas of bone resorption. And they've done this primarily by creating kind of cages of molecules that will help deliver that to where there's being new bone laid down. So in the case of samarium, they have a phosphate cage to help deliver it there. What's cool about radium-223 is two things. One, that this has no cage. This is a pure molecule. This is what, you know, Madame Curie discovered, you know, over 100 years ago. This is pure radium, uh, absolute calcium mimetic, working naturally. And then the second thing is a supercharged radiation therapy. It's an alpha-emitting particle, which is a very, very heavy, heavy radiation. So it's incredibly intense, sort of like your, your brachytherapy intensity with seeds. But it's very heavy, so it only penetrates about 100 microns or so. Cells are about 15, 20 microns thick, so we're looking at probably somewhere around five to maybe seven cells deep penetrance of this. So incredible pinpoint radiation therapy into where there's being calcium deposition. Now, here's the really cool thing to me, Neil. So this drug showed a survival advantage, and in fact, on this sort of final analysis, that a survival advantage increased out to 3.6 months. And they showed a survival advantage in this population with that kind of limited penetrance. It had almost no marrow suppression because it was so limited radiation fields. So we could dose this once a month for six doses, probably could do more with very little hematopoietic toxicity, which is great for our patient population that we want to give external beam radiation to at times, that we need to be able to give cytotoxic chemotherapy to, and other things. And remarkably, that, you know, bone, this isn't even the micro, this is the micro-micro environment resulting in a survival advantage, really telling us that the driver of this biology is not just 
the epithelial tumor cells floating in the circulating blood or in our soft tissues. This disease limited into the, where that bone resorption, where that bone mineralization is happening, is the driver seed of this survival for this patient population. What about your presentation, abstract 4549, looking at orteranol, which used to be known, I guess, as TAC-700? Yeah, I think TAC-700 orteranol is sort of a second generation, if you will, androgen synthesis inhibitor, sort of building along the same rationale as abiraterone, but different from abiraterone. This is a semi-synthetic molecule. This is specifically designed to target the lyase component of the CYP17 inhibition. So blocking 17 lyase, which is the enzyme involved in the metabolism to androgens, and preferentially blocking less the hydroxylase 17 enzyme, which is the one that blocks cortisol production and gives us all the mineral corticoid side effects, low cortisol, and requires prednisone to be given. So we looked to see if we could use a slightly lower but still therapeutic dose of orteranol, 300 milligrams BID, rather than the 400 milligram BID dose being studied with prednisone in phase three studies. So slightly lower dose without prednisone and a non-metastatic but kind of rapidly progressive prostate cancer population. Either high PSAs over 10 or PSAs less than that with doubling times less than eight months. And what we were able to show was extremely good PSA responses. We saw about 30, 35% of our patients drop their PSAs all the way down to less than 0.2. We had a significant percentage of our patients, 30, 40% of our patients dropping their PSA by 90% or more. The duration of these responses, just PSA response alone is out to about 14 and a half months in this population. We had over 90, 95% of our population who are metastasis free at one year. So we'll see where that data evolves, but really robust activity with fairly minimal additional toxicity, specifically looking at things like hypertension, low potassium, we didn't see that. We're able to drop these enzymes and maintain to some extent that cortisol level. We did see a little bit of cortisol come down, but not much. So it's exciting to us that some of these more specific agents could be used without prednisone because it allows us to move them up earlier, either alone or with androgen deprivation therapy, maybe even with MDV 3100 in the future without having to put patients on prednisone, using the idea of targeting more maximally the androgen, as well as the androgen receptor, I mean, this could help us get to even greater levels of androgen deprivation, androgen inhibition in the future. Any right now to indirectly compare it clinically to abiraterone? Well, you know, this particular study wasn't designed to maximize the efficacy. It was really designed to find that therapeutic index where it was still efficacious without the need for prednisone. Head-to-head studies looking to see if this could be more effective at blocking that enzyme I'm not aware of those studies going on at this point in time. I think, but ultimately, the way these drugs would be probably parsed out would be more along the lines of their tolerance and their lack of need for prednisone than one showing a slightly greater efficacy over the other. So I'm not sure, you know, that that's going to be the strategy for differentiation. I see it more along these lines. Let's talk a little bit about renal cell and always interested in new agents And there were a couple papers, one by Bob Mozer, 4501, and by Tom Hudson, 4686, on a pretty interesting new agent, tovazinib. Yeah, you know, in renal cell carcinoma, we have two really validated strategies right now for patient benefit. One of them is targeting the VEGF receptor pathway, either the ligand or the receptors. 
and the other is blocking on mTOR. And this represents sort of the next generation, if you will, of VEGF receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors. What makes this drug a little bit different from other drugs already in the field are a couple of things. One, it has a very, very specific profile for the VEGF receptor family of inhibitors. It does not block PDGF, CKIT, or some of these other things that we see with some of the other agents. And it blocks it at a very, very low sub-nanomolar level. So it's got some of the greatest efficacy for these receptors and specificity. So you'll see the dose is 1.5 milligrams, very, very low dose. The other interesting thing about this molecule, it's got a very, very long half-life. It's got about a three and a half day to five day half-life. And I think Tom looked at this also in terms of an active metabolite. So we're looking at a very, very long acting, once a day, easy to take, very specific agent for this class. And it was compared against one of the first generation, more multi-targeted kinase inhibitor, serafinib, and a kidney cancer population, upfront metastatic disease, untreated population. And they were able to show, it's a relatively small phase three study, about 500 and something patients, able to show a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival, nearly 12 months, 11.9 months to 9.1 months for serafinib. So about a three-month improvement in overall progression-free survival for this drug, but a very clean side effect profile, very good tolerance, very few dose interruptions, very few dose reductions in a broad patient population. So I think this is an agent that once we get to use this in practice, I think clinicians may find this an easier drug for patients to take. If they skip a pill once in a while, their drug levels aren't going to go to zero. Blood pressures are not going to shoot up and down multiple times a day. It's going to be a very, very steady state. You take it for three weeks, you get one week off, you keep it going again. I think this is going to be one that will translate this data into practice much more easier. I think we found, Neil, that some of the clinical trial data we have with these tyrosine kinase inhibitors you know, they can do it on study and show these progression-free survival rates. But when we get into real-world situations, it's much harder for our patients to tolerate this. And I think many of my colleagues in practice tell me, yeah, I have a hard time getting patients to tolerate, you know, sunitinib or pazopinib or axitinib. So I think that one of the things that we'll be looking at with this drug is, do they have that equally hard time? Or is this an agent that maybe translates a little easier for their patient population? Any way to indirectly compare efficacy to sunitinib, and is there a trial that's going to look at that? Well, I think you absolutely have to have a trial because I think outside of a trial, we're seeing that there's a lot of noise in this. And there's a couple of examples in this. And you can just look at the control arms here for serafinib from some studies going from six months up to nine months. And I think you can also see this with sunitinib with studies that have initially reported an 11-month progression-free survival, and now follow-up studies looking at different dosing regimens, but showing that same 50-milligram dosing regimen with an eight-month progression-free survival. So I think patient selection here is really critical, and it's telling me that we really don't know all the factors. We may think we understand what the prognostic stratification should be and how to balance that, but there's a lot of things we can't control. And I think progression-free survival as an endpoint is a little bit soft. That's a little bit open to interpretation. So I think just the methodology and how we assess that could be a factor in some of these studies. So I'm really hesitant to do that. I kind of look at them as all active players in the field. And I think some of these other things like toxicity, tolerance, compliance, 
And things like this are going to be probably more differentiators in the real world than any of these kinds of differences. So you know I got to ask you about anti PD one. You know, <laughs> you probably the, asked all your all your yeah, speakers on this. Absolutely. Well, certainly lung and melanoma, that's for sure. But the other part of the triumvirate, you know, at least that came out of ASCO, was renal cell. The presentation by Dr. McDermott, forty five oh five. Yeah, Neil, this is uh, you know we've been waiting for another strategy in kidney cancer for a long time. We've had high dose IL two in this disease since the nineteen eighties. And it's a bear to give. It's a bear to give. It's incredibly hard on the patients. It's a very, very small population of patients that benefit from that strategy. And yet, there it is. You know, there's some remarkable responses. You know, how can we do a better job of harnessing our immune systems against these cancers? And I think renal cell carcinoma is absolutely a great tumor to do this in because we have agents like interferon and high dose interleukin-2 that work in this disease, but are dirty. Because this tends to be a relatively slow-growing disease in some patients, and because some of these ligands to stimulate this kind of immune checkpoint shutoff have been shown to be expressed, highly expressed, in renal cell carcinoma. So I think the premise here is a really strong one. And what Dr. McDermott was able to show for us is that we saw really significant partial responses that were very, very durable. Granted, this was a phase one population, but still very, very durable effects in pretreated patients. And when they looked at patients where we had available tumor, all the responses seemed to be in the patients whose tumors had expression of this PD ligand on their tumor. So PD ligand is something typically expressed on angin presenting cells to shut off T cells. What we've known is that tumors can do the same thing and shut off T cells in the recognition of them to evade the immune system. And blocking that mechanism has allowed these T cells to overcome tolerance, to re-engage with the tumor, and to show really durable partial responses. And I'm excited to see how that strategy can get added to other strategies in renal cell carcinoma to really improve our overall outcomes. And I guess this PD ligand 1 assay is just it seems like an IHC, pretty predictive of benefit. You know, I think it's going to have to be borne out in more studies. You know, they're looking primarily at the primary tumors. You wonder how many of these tumors could acquire this biology or select this biology in the metastatic setting. I'd hate to limit our use to just that. So I think we're going to need some more studies with it to really validate that that's the biomarker. But, you know, that's the way oncology is going. It has to go that way. It's too expensive. It's too inefficient for us to treat all comers all the same way, we need to begin to identify the populations of patients where a strategy that's as specific as this is really beneficial, and then we can justify all the cost and test. And I guess what we've also seen in this sort of splurge of data on anti-PD-1 is some toxicity, some autoimmune problems, but not as much as ipilimumab. This is a little bit further downstream than what you have with ipilimumab in terms of unblocking the immune system. So it makes sense that this would be a little bit better tolerated. And I think that's right. We still see autoimmune side effects, but they tend to not be as severe as what we see with ipilimumab. And I think that's going to be really important. 